there's a speech in the book Atlas Shrugged. I'm going to, I'm so moved by this passage that I'm going to read it on the show. Like I'm sit down and read it. It's so good. It's probably the best definition of money I've ever seen. I heard, but I'd ever heard or seen written. And it was at that exact moment that the money man walked square into my field of vision that this exact moment in this 63 hour audio book, that exact moment that that speech started. So it was like a very strange, and then obviously what I do for a living, I'm in the, mm-hmm. what is money show? So it was like a, like, whoa, what are the odds of that? Yeah, yeah. And when you hear this, the money speech, like it is brilliant. Um, so that's, for me, that was a synchronicity, right? That's something meaningful that occurred, not seemingly explainable by, you know, linear cause, yeah. cause and effect. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor-based, so all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm gonna do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C dot com. Hello, and a huge warm welcome to Robert Breedlove, to Bitcoin people. Thank you for coming aboard. Thank you for having me. It's absolutely gorgeous to have you here live in person. Right. I'm going to tell the story of how we met this time last year <laughs> because it was it was just a cute story. So I'd been doing these, I don't even know if you know all this background, but I was doing these crazy long days with um, volunteering mm. in the lead up 
to the conference this time mm. last year. And so I did these two days, two and a half days, like because there was even three hours just in the lead up mm. to uh, the first morning. So three hours before the first morning. And as a thank you, they gave me one of the uh, swag bags, mm. the whale swag bags. And in there was two pairs of <laughs> Bitcoin socks. <laughs> And so I stuffed light, them in light my Light blue, bag. if I remember. There was a light blue and yeah. a dark blue. Yeah. And, and I had them stuffed in my backpack and I came racing over to the convention center because mm. I'd been out over at Fountain Blur. And then I see you tweet later in the day going, I need socks. Yeah. I'm like, I got socks. <laughs> and then you... Uh, and my side of the story was, I think I had low rise socks and boots or something. So they kept on going under my heel every time I would walk a few steps. I'm like, this is driving me crazy. Yeah. So I was like, what can I do about this? I'm stuck at the convention center all day. So I send a tweet out like, does anyone have socks? <laughs> and you saved my life. So. As one does, as one does. And so I've been suck girl ever since <laughs> in your mind. So my opening question to you has to be, is there such a thing as serendipity? Whew, that's a great question. Um, I, you know, Oh man, Bitcoin rabbit hole has informed a lot of my metaphysical views, I guess you would say. And serendipity, like what do we how do we define this is something like these synchronous occurrences that somehow transcend the realm of plausibility. Um I think Carl Jung, I, I'm not sure how much serendipity is related to synchronicity, but I guess I'm kind of drawing an equivalence between them. Yeah, it is in my mind. Um, I know it's different from fate mm -hmm. in as much as fate or destiny tends to have a sort of flavor of it could be good or bad, mm -hmm. but there's a sense of meant to be, whereas serendipity is almost... It's got a good. It's, head, it's got a good flavor. Yeah. There's a sense of luck about it, and there's a sense of synchronicity in with it as well. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So I'll speak to synchronicity, maybe a little more than serendipity. Because I don't know, but um, I think Carl Jung called synchronicity the a causal principle. So mm -hmm. there's some principle in reality that's not causal, right? It's not linear cause and effect as we think time unfolds. Uh, there are these happenstance, these chance happenstance events or occurrences that just can't be explained by pure causality. I actually experienced one of these recently. Um, I had just returned back to Nashville. Where had I come from? Sorry, I've been traveling a lot lately. Um, oh, I was coming back from the MicroStrategy Conference in Orlando. So I've been down there, you know, it's a Bitcoin and lightning thing, et cetera, et cetera. I had been listening and I have still been listening to the audiobook Atlas Shrugged. First time I've ever been through the book. I get off the plane in Nashville. I get my bags. I'm listening to Atlas Shrugged. I go to the arrivals area. My friend is coming to pick me up from the airport. And I sit down. I've got like a 20-minute wait until he gets there. So I sit down. And I'm on my phone. I've got my bags. Just sitting there listening to Atlas Shrugged. As soon as I sit down, this gentleman walks into my field, directly into my field of vision, actually, like 10 feet in front of me, squared up. He's facing out, waiting on his ride. His entire suit is dollar bills, like covered in pieces, like he's in the money suit, basically. I'm like, oh. 
You tweeted it. I yeah, saw, and I took yeah. a picture of this guy, and I'm like, you know, what's more Fiat than this outfit or whatever it was? But at that exact moment, when I saw this guy, and I like looked up and took the picture, there's a speech in the book Atlas Shrugged, and it's by I think that the character's name is Francisco D'Antonia. I hope I'm saying his name right. And he has this like 15 minute speech on money. So if you Google the money speech and not Atlas Shrugged, it's like, this is the speech. Like it's, it's, I'm going to, I'm so moved by this passage that I'm going to read it on the show. Like I'm sit down and read it. It's so good. It's probably the best definition of money I've ever seen. I heard, but I'd ever heard or seen written. And it was at that exact moment that the money man walked square into my field of vision that this exact moment in this 63 hour audiobook, that exact moment that that speech started. So it was like a very strange, and then obviously what I do for a living, I'm in the mm-hmm. What Is Money show. So it was like, a, like whoa, what are the odds of that? Yeah, yeah. And when you hear this, the money speech, like it is brilliant. Um, it, it I won't I won't do it justice here, but it goes into all the moral implications of money, the psychological implications of money. Uh, it, it's just really good. So I ended up re-listening to that excerpt like five times over the next few days, and um, yeah, decided I'm going to read it on the show. So that's for me that was a synchronicity, right? That's something meaningful that occurred, not seemingly explainable by you know linear cause yeah. cause and effect. Um. And the original question was... Well, is there such a thing as serendipity? And what I'm hearing is there's sort of a lining up mm-hmm. of a whole bunch of, of concepts and ideas all merging at the same time. Mm-hmm. Do, that's a really obvious example, but I guess I'm curious if that's happened throughout your life a bit. Have you noticed things kind of coming together? Because I feel like there's a lot about your background and your life that is serendipitous in bringing together what you're doing now. It's almost like you were meant for the role that you're doing now. Maybe, maybe. I, um, yeah, there's been a number of things. So I've, I've shared this one before, but before Bitcoin even existed, when I was 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, I was playing massive online multiplayer game called Diablo 2. And this is like Dungeons and Dragons sort of in computer space, but with millions of people around the world. And so the funny thing about the game, though, is there was an entire economy that existed inside of the game. So you would like go into these dungeons and kill demons and zombies and all that, and you'd find these rare items. All the items roll different stats, so there's like this kind of gambling effect that you're trying to look for these high quality items but certain items are good for certain classes and not for others so you needed to actually not only go into the game and hunt for treasure but then you needed to take that treasure out into the marketplace and trade it with other people to really build your character and like get get what not build your character like when I say build your character I mean equip your character with the best equipment not build your character in like a, a spiritual sense um, and so I I learned through playing this game like I started out playing the Dungeons and Dragons like actually the fighting and slaying mostly but over time I found myself playing the markets like I learned first of all I learned how to type really fast like I got to like 100 words a minute typing just because that's how you trade faster I learned how to build the you would 
it was just text driven. So you would have to structure your text uh, in these trade channels in a certain way to get people's attention. You'd have to learn like time of day to, to trade. You'd try to buy low in one channel, sell high in another channel, and you're just learning to accumulate wealth basically. Yeah. And so I ended up doing that much more than I was playing the actual game itself. And I became like the wealthy guy in the game. So all my friends that played would come to me for equipment and all of this. And I was like, oh, this is so fun and interesting. I didn't know I was learning like basically markets and economics. Um, There's also a weird thing that there was no money in the game, or at least money wasn't useful in trade. But there was an item called the Stone of Jordan Ring that effectively monetized. It became money in the game. It became the standard currency of trade because it was divisible. It was rare. Like it had all these certain qualities. So again, I didn't know this consciously at the time, but I like watched it play out and learned how to use it. And then eventually that game became so popular or it was becoming popular at the same time eBay started to become popular. So people eventually started to sell these items for real money on eBay. So all of a sudden this rare storm shield, monarch shield that I had found, right? It's like super rare and hard to find in the game. Well, now it sells on eBay for $1,000. I was like, what the hell? So it left a mark on me. I was like, whatever's going on in this weird video game world that I'm super addicted to and into, like it has real world implications. Like why are people paying $1,000 for this digital thing? And so I just... I don't know at the time I'm like whatever my career is going to be like I'm going to stay on this this through line of technology, commerce, digital age, like something's happening here. I want to stay tuned into it. Um and so I guess that kind of set me on the course for Bitcoin to some extent or to at least I joked that I was into digital assets before digital digital assets existed. Um and if I back up even further, like my my very early years, um, my father was a successful entrepreneur. So we, we lived very well when I was very young, but my mother and my father split when I was five years old. And when they split, um, I lived very low economically for a period of time after that. So I had seen kind of both sides of the equation in that respect and um, I don't know, maybe that just gave me like a, a tacit understanding for the value of, of money, you know, that what it's like to have it and what it's like to not have it. And um, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know that, that you're asking me about like serendipity or I don't know. But these it things. set you up. It's, it's almost like, it's almost like there's certain events that have happened in your life that have given you a background and a flavor for, um, for money for trading, for what has value, mm-hmm. for what's meaningful. Um, and technology, like the digital technology thing has been a big thing. Growing up on yes. video games and all, you know, I'm a digital native, basically. I'm an old digital native. But, yeah, yeah, right. But it's nice to hear just how powerful and effective gaming mm-hmm. can be. Yeah. As a mother of a boy who enjoys gaming, <laughs> um, it's really positive to hear that. Um, there was a piece in your background that always struck me, which was in 2008, we had the GFC. Mm-hmm. There was a shooting in Tennessee. You were living there at the time, weren't you? Um, I was there in 2008, yeah. And it was a church shooting. Mm. Um, and it was pretty devastating to the community. And you'd taken some time off around then to do some building, mm-hmm. to do some construction work, mm. some not-for-profit construction work. Mm. 
And what kind of struck me is that the whole world was kind of in destruction mode and you were in construction mode. And it almost feels, maybe that was part of what was going through my head as I was starting to think, talk to you about serendipity is, and kind of the making of your background for who you are now, which is this thing of, it's almost like that's what you're doing again now. You're in construction mode, you're building something, you're creating something, you're part of changing the world whilst there's this massive economic mm. devastation going mm. on around us, like this destruction that's kind of, you know, we can go into all the reasons mm. and we know all those reasons, but it's almost like that seems to be a big part of your role in the world. Well, uh, yeah, I, it's, it, when you said shooting in Tennessee, I actually reflected on the more recent one that was um, there was a shooting at Covenant Elementary School, a private Christian school, 15 minutes from my home in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, this was just a couple of months ago, um, I think in March, actually. And three adults were killed. So three staff members and three children were killed by a transsexual terrorist uh, whose tranifesto was never released, but we have it on good authority in Tennessee that it was a, it was an anti-Christian terrorist attack, that mm -hmm. this transsexual was attacking a Christian school to punish Christians for not believing in whatever trans supporting them in imaginary the, yeah. whatever thing that he or she was into. And um, that one hit really hard for me because I had I have a young daughter and I had actually gone through the enrollment process at that school with her. Oh, and wow. there was a possibility that she was going to go there and we ended up not, she ended up not going to that school. Not that she would have been there at that time, but um, it hit very close to home, let's just say. I think I even met uh, one of the individuals, which was the head of the school, was one of the ones killed and we, we had met her. We yeah. met her during that enrollment process, so it was very surreal to move back to Tennessee to try and be in a place that is insulated from this mass psychosis that's embroiling the world, in a place that I thought would be safe, good place to school my daughter, good place to lead a peaceful existence, only to find that that wokest psychosis is at our doorstep. You know, it's everywhere. And, um, so that's the one that came to mind when you mentioned that, but I think the one you're referring to back in 2008, I had, um, I had gone on a, it was the cross Greek Christian ministries at, in college. So it was a, a Christian organization for fraternities and sororities. And I had taken my, I guess this was fourth or fifth year. I only did four years of college, but then I did my fifth year was my master's degree in accounting. I can't remember if this is fourth or fifth year, but for spring break, we went down to Bay St. Louis after Hurricane Katrina. And Bay St. Louis was where the eye of the storm hit. So it looked like a nuclear bomb went off, basically. Like everything was ripped down to, you know, it was just pipes sticking out of the ground where there used to be neighborhoods. And so uh, my group of good friends and I, we we had been participating in, in the cross, like you go to church every week or whatever, and they organized the mission trip down to Bay St. Louis to aid in the reconstruction effort. Uh, 
And I think that's what you're referring to at that time. Like, yeah, I, I went down there and um, seeing the human spirit, like these people that there's one guy in particular, he just had lost everything. Like he, like Bay St. Louis was like his, he grew up there. He had his kids there. He had his, all the things, all of it, like the cars, the house, the everything just obliterated, nothing left. Right. I think everyone survived. So he hadn't lost any people, but he was just so optimistic and so bright and shiny. Like we would show up to do this work that I'm like, okay, this is mission work. These people have lost everything. Like I need to try to be upbeat. And, and this guy would just run circles around me. Like, he's like, let's do it. So great. Like it's out here in the sun shining, swinging. Like he's just so enthusiastic. And I'm like, that left a mark on me. I'm like yeah. this guy, I mean, talk about having it rough. Like you, yeah, yeah, everything you've ever built, this guy's probably mid forties. Like everything he ever had materially. I think he had no insurance. Like it was just all gone. Cause you know, they weren't insuring a lot of these things and it was just literally just everything you've built in your whole life. Just. But also so quickly that yeah. he, he was so positive so quickly. I've just finished reading on the plane, um, the happiest man on earth, mm. which is a Holocaust survivor mm. who's now a sent, Tenary, and I'm not going to get to it. Not, it's not Victor right. Frankel, is it? No, no, no. no. Okay. It's not Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. This guy is, um, uh, but you know, same camps or some yeah. of the same camps, and but he made a choice at some point. Uh, well, really, at the point when his son was born, mm. and just when it wasn't about forgiving, mm -hmm. it was, and you know, in in different circumstances sometimes it's a tsunami and there's nothing and no one to forgive mm -hmm. um it's just at some point just making that choice yeah of i'm just gonna be happy regardless yeah yeah and this the the perseverance the human spirit the the willingness to overcome it's almost like becoming is overcoming you know you can't become anything in the world without overcoming obstacles and this guy was just like this laser focused, happy guy. I don't know. It was so incredible. And, um, I, as someone I struggle, actually, I have naturally have low enthusiasm. I'm not like a very happy go lucky guy, but for whatever reason that really impacted me to just see someone that was able to be that way in the face of such great adversity. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touch screen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, The Gold Investment Letter. The Gold Investment Letter helps sophisticated investors navigate capital markets and maximize their profits in trading gold, silver, and mining stocks. 
The gold investment letter seeks out the most undervalued companies and identifies special situations in the mining sector and then provides in-depth analysis on both their financial positions and future prospects. The gold investment letter explores many complex domains such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends, all with the goal of making you a better investor. The Gold Investment Letter offers a free version and a paid premium version, and I strongly recommend you at least sign up for the free version because after having read a few of these issues, I can promise you it is a treasure trove of good information. You can sign up for the free newsletter today at goldinvestmentletter.com. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. So we say Bitcoin fixes this. Does it fix trans-terrorism? Does it fix wokeism? If so, how so? There's a great, and I implore, look, I don't even like to watch videos, actually. I prefer to read. I don't, I'm listening to the audiobook at a convenience, like when I'm walking through airports or whatever. I prefer to read. That's mm-hmm. my medium. I don't typically recommend things for people to listen to or watch, but I, I posted a tweet about this. It's by uh, a guy on Twitter his Twitter handle is at Conceptual James. His name is escaping me at the moment, but his name's Probably James. James. <laughs> yeah, his last name's escaping me. And he has this 30-minute video describing wokeism as a modern rebranding of Marxism, essentially. It is just another, another one of those, right? It's a psychological operation intended to deceive people into believing a narrative that forfeits power to the state so that more so that more coercion is justified so in other words as nietzsche said everything the state has is stolen everything it says is a lie so marxism is this giant lie intended to separate you from your stuff right Mm -hmm. from each according to their ability to each according to their need it's all bullshit what is it actually intended to do is get you to believe that there is a a blank moral and ethical check on any actions necessary to move us from the present state to the communist utopia, right? Where we don't need private property or profit motives or any of that. We're all just one in brotherhood. And it preys on this circuitry that we all have because at the local level, we are communists, right? Like I don't charge my daughter for breakfast I give the shirt off my back, right? I do, I'll give anything for her. I'm very, very communal in the family scale, but that does not scale up to civilization. And so this video 
James walks through it step by step. It's a 30 minute video going through the history of all these psychological operations and perfectly slots wokeism into it and just saying, this is another one of those, right? It's another one of these um, getting people to emphasize and believe that group identity politics are somehow a solution and it, there's an inversion of language, right? Like we get into critical race theory, which is institutionalized racism mm -hmm. intended to alleviate racism. Like it doesn't make any sense, of course. The, uh, the entire idea of your preferred pronouns, like sure, you can have a preferred pronoun, that's fine. What you can't do is coerce someone to play imaginary with you. If you're an adult man and you identify as an infant, you cannot coerce me or force me to identify, for me to identify mm -hmm. you as an infant. Yep. I will identify you however I want. Yep. And as will everyone else. And the social consensus on who you are, that is your reputation. Mm -hmm. That is your identity. You don't own that. You don't own your identity. You don't own your reputation. It's a social construct. So, and kids know this, right? Like if you go, if you see a group of kids and one of them tries to force other kids to play their game of imagination. Mm -hmm. Like, you're the purple dinosaur, you're the red one, you're the green one. Kids are like, no, I'm the white dinosaur, I'm the helicopter. Like, kids <laughs> self-select, they self-organize. If one of those tyrannical kids comes in there and tries to force yep. roles on people or force a role on himself, kids will reject him. Yep. Yet that's what we're talking about with wokeism. It's like people can now identify as whatever they want and then they can force others to accept them and identify them as those things, it's, it's asinine. My favorite meme on this was, uh, it shows a motorcyclist <laughs> and there's all these bi bicyclists behind him and it says, uh, motorcyclist that identifies as a cyclist wins the Tour de France. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and like, that's it, it's like you don't get, when it comes to language, right, it's, a, it's an emergent social consensus on the meaning of words you don't get to arbitrarily, unilaterally change the meanings of words. And you sure as the hell can't force other people to play your imaginary game. If, you wanna, if you're a man and you wanna pretend to be a woman, great. You can ask your friends to pretend with you. You cannot force other people to pretend with you. Coercion, uninitiated coercion is unjustifiable. And that's one of the core themes we visit on this show over and over again. So, wokeism is Marxism. Yep. Through and through. So, does Bitcoin change these cycles that we've seen over again, these fourth turnings, these, um, there are 500 year cycles, we've got Mark Moss talking about political, social, mm. cultural, we've got mm. economic, financial, we've got technological, there's all these cycles. Does Bitcoin break that on the back of so much of that is based in the corruption of money over time, the cycles of corruption of money? Uh, you know, it's a... It's a it's a colossal question. I can't begin to know the answer. But when I look at something like this wokeism thing, a significant portion of this ideology is being state-sponsored. Mm -hmm. It's being funded yes. by the proceeds stolen through taxation and inflation. Yeah. So it is a, it's an imposed artificial ideology that is funded through theft. Now, if Bitcoin is money that makes theft more expensive, mm -hmm. right? You cannot inflate it. It is very hard to steal, if not impossible to steal, if you custody it properly. Therefore, in the long run, we think it obviates the need for the state, the relevance of the state as an institution that 
preys on private property that exist on theft, then I don't think you'll be able to find a viable means of financing things like what was wokeism in a Bitcoinized world because the theft is going to be much more difficult. So the extent to which you can fund these false divisive ideologies into a society, right, to tell this false narrative, create divisiveness, which also creates more demand for law and order, which then gives you this, again, the blank check, right? Mm -hmm. Pass whatever regulation you need to, to restore law and order. That whole process gets dampened by the existence of Bitcoin because theft is more expensive, more risky, and therefore less possible. So with less theft, in theory, we would have less of these artificially composed and composed and imposed ideologies. So I don't know that it fixes like all these other cycles, the long debt cycle that Ray Dalio puts out, that has a lot to do with the nature of gold, right? That the incentive was to hoard all the gold and then force everyone else to use currencies that depreciate over time, which incentivizes all market actors to accumulate debt. Eventually the debt burden gets too overgrown and then there's a collapse. Again, in theory, if you're on a Bitcoin standard, debt would just be a much smaller component of the world economy. So presumably we would have less credit cycles, smaller credit cycles. Um, and then as far as like the fourth turning and all that, and I haven't read this book, but no, I don't think Bitcoin fixes everything like that, right? There's still going to be this, these grand historical cycles. What's the one where we say that Hard times make strong men, strong to make good times. Good times make weak men, weak men make hard times. That, I don't know if Bitcoin fixes per se. Maybe it makes us all stronger just by kind of forcing power and responsibility to the individual level. Mm -hmm. Maybe, but I mean, these, these cycles are as old as time, so it's hard to say. So what do humans do with that power if they're given it? And we've never seen such a transfer of power from straight, uh, sorry, from state to individual. So uh, we, you just talked about the communist utopia, mm. and yet we seem pretty utopian in the Bitcoin community. We have high hopes for what mankind is going to do with mm. that spare time given back to him, her, us. Are we are we being ridiculous? I, you know, I, Bitcoin is different, right? In that, I guess you could argue that what we're saying is utopian, but I don't think Bitcoiners actually see it that way. I don't think, I don't think most adversarial thinking Bitcoiners envision us moving towards some kind of static utopia. We're just saying that. Bitcoin represents the first level playing field for humanity. So again, the Marxist utopia was give one organization all the power. Yeah. The good communist people and they will dole out the resources in everyone's best interests, right? So the prescription was no more private property. This is the, this is communism in, in a sentence, right? The abolition of private property, straight out of Marx's mouth. That's the core of communism. Socialism, so communism's on one end of the spectrum. Socialism is that institutionalized policy of aggression against private property. So any state that has taxation or inflation, they're socialistic, right? If we have a central bank, then we're one half socialist. 
So we've never had true free market capitalism, which exists over here on this opposite end of the spectrum that presumably Bitcoin is taking us towards. And um, that seems, I'm sorry, I drifted from the original question again. Uh, utopia. Yeah, so this it's not a utopia, right? Pure capitalism is not utopian. I think it's just saying that it's the opposite prescription of communism, which is the abolition of private property. Bitcoin is saying, let's make private property as strong as possible, which is the same thing as saying, let's make human freedom as strong as possible. Because what is it? It's life, liberty, property, right? If I, if I kill you, I've stolen your future freedom. I've taken your life, stolen your life. If I incarcerate you, I have stolen your present freedom. You cannot move about, right? If I steal your property, I have stolen the fruits of your past freedom, the things that you've gone yeah, out right. into the world to create, right? You've, you've used your faculties to create things of value that you now own. Communism was based on the abolition of human freedom. When it says the abolition of private property, that is the abolition of human freedom. So had we properly understood the definition of private property in that day, someone might have saw through that. And, and indeed, people did. Nietzsche saw through this, right? He said, as soon as you get communist utopia, I think he said, um, what did he say? We were gonna, we'd never find enough water to wash away all the blood or something like that. Like he, he saw this yeah. coming in this communist utopia that it would lead to its precise opposite because private property is human freedom. And so in this Bitcoin utopia, we're just saying everyone's gonna be as free and autonomous as they have ever been. Yeah, We're not painting a specific vision right like this is what the world's going to look like you know you got to have this kind of institution and this kind of organization it's like no you let people self-sort you let people self-organize the everyone's just operating on a principle of justice which is if justice is people getting what they deserve and private property is you keep what you earn right like i work to create something i get to keep that as do you and then we are all free to interact and engage consensually in trade that's what creates the best outcome. But it's not this static utopian vision that the communists had, right? The communists, yeah. we were just gonna enter the utopian brotherhood and everything would be great. I don't think Bitcoiners think like that. I think Bitcoiners think pragmatically, realistically, and they're just saying like, if we can just organize ourselves based on a just and unchangeable rule set, that we will create the best possible emergent outcome without saying with any degree of specificity what that is, right? Because it's about freedom. It's not about a specific outcome. So you're a freedom maximalist. Mm. What role does government play, if any? The preservation of life, liberty, and property. So that is physical force. So we're talking military in terms of protection of life, liberty, and property mm -hmm. within the confines of, a, of whatever mm -hmm. boundaries, and equally police force, life, liberty, and mm -hmm. property internally. Yeah, and there's a lot of devil in the details here. Um, yeah. I like to point people to the work of someone like Stefan Kinsella. He's a libertarian attorney, and he's written extensively about how this world would work. Um, you could also go back in time a little bit and look at the works of Murray Rothbard. Uh, we have a series on the show that went through Rothbard's book, The Ethics of Liberty. And he walks through, you know, every, you know, bribery, 
boycotting, blackmail, like all these very specific legal things. And he's like, here's what it would look like in a libertarian world. So, um, yes, the government that governs best governs least as one of our founding fathers said, and you don't, government is just a monopoly. And I'll, I'll try to be more specific here to delineate between the state and government. This Mm. is a bad habit of mine and many of us. We use these terms as, as if they are interchangeable, interchangeable. government mm. and the state, but they're not actually. Government is just the nexus of institutions and rules and um, all of the things, the rules that we opt into at, as a society. The state is something else. So the state is something that's imposing certain rules, right? It's legislating a thing. And if you don't do this, then I'm going to penalize you. And it's also imposing taxation. There's non-consensual exchange. It's systemizing theft through inflation, taxation, et cetera. So the state is, um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought again. I didn't sleep much last night. So that's probably why. <laughs> You're we're, at Miami Bitcoin uh, Conference. You're not going to sleep much. We're, I, I was, so we were talking about the role of government. Oh, okay. And then we, so, we tangented okay. into the government versus so state. So government, yeah. this exclusive philosophical scope of government would be the preservation of life, liberty, and property. Now that doesn't mean you need government to provide all of these things like that we're accustomed to like, um, judges, legal arbitration, police, et cetera. There are libertarian alternatives to that. It's not exactly clear what that world would look like, but again, you could check out the writings of Rothbard and Kinsella, et cetera. Um, the state though, is that organization that is, it's institutionalizing crime. It's the highest form of organized crime, right? We, we, we've created a monopoly on violence mm-hmm. to protect ourselves from violence. But whoever we've put in the seat of power is using this mechanism that we have intended to create to secure ourselves to abuse us. Mm-hmm. And this has been this weird dance humans have been locked in across time. It's like, let's put all the power in one place so if anyone misbehaves, the, the state power can condemn them, okay. right? Jail them, penalize them, kill them, whatever it may be. But then how do we make sure that no ruler bends the state apparatus for their own private gain, right? This is the definition of corruption, by the way. Bending a publicly applied rule for private gain. So the publicly applied rule of the state is supposed to be the rule of law, right? We're all equal in the eyes of the law. So that it's not like one person can get favor over another. Of course, that's an ideal and it doesn't work like that in practice, but Bitcoin is sort of like that ultimate rule of law, right? It's just, we are all equal in the eyes of Bitcoin, literally. Like there's nothing, you can't do anything about that. Individuals are individuals, right? Um, Nodes are nodes, keys are keys. I guess technically Bitcoin doesn't even see individuals. It just sees UTXOs and private keys and nodes, et cetera. So, Um, hopefully by giving people, first of all, by bringing an uninflatable money into the world that fixes one big source of state theft, which is the central bank and inflation. But you've also given people recourse to this hyper portable form of capital. That's very easy to conceal, very easy to move, very easy to custody. That should let people be able to vote with their feet and vote with their wallet a lot more effectively in terms of what states they 
they inhabit, right? So if, for instance, if you're in China today, you cannot get more than 50,000 um, yuan out of the country in any given year, right? There's capital controls. But through something like Bitcoin, well, all of a sudden you can move, right? You can get all your net worth into Bitcoin and you can move to whatever state or government treats you best. So I think the the promise or the hope of Bitcoin is that it, it allows so much individual mobility between states that states now have to compete for citizens, right? To get the best and the brightest and the most capital into their jurisdictions such that they have to be accountable to the preferences of their customers or of citizens, which is not the case today, right? You, you were in Australia during the lockdown. Don't think they gave two shits about your preferences. Indeed. I know places in the U.S., like, again, I was in Los Angeles. They didn't give a shit about your preferences. Now, there were better places. Like, part of the reason I moved to Tennessee is because government's a little more accountable. Um, I think that has something to do with with the presence of Christianity in the South, but I'm not sure. But something like Bitcoin should help uh, help engender a greater dynamic like that where people are able to self-sort uh, and go to where they're treated best so therefore governments have an incentive to be the ones that treat them best versus the ones that treat them worst as we do today now i'd like to tell you about our sponsor wasabi wallet with wasabi wallet you can receive send and store bitcoin privately in wasabi wallet your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden Wasabi Wallet is easy to use, all of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin, and for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. You've devoted your life to educating people around Bitcoin. Um, you're passionate about it. You continue to be passionate about it and put yourself out there and do full days of interviews like today and do so across the world. At one level, this is a ground-up movement, and we're seeing huge uptake in um, countries in Africa, like Ni Nigeria, Namibia, Kenya, South Africa. But at the other level, there's this sense of gradually, then suddenly, mm -hmm. that at some point, with institutional adoption and or BRICS nations suddenly trading 
you know, moving away from petrodollar to mm. petrobitcoin. And there's this kind of anticipation of explosion with that kind of adoption. Is it inevitable? Is Bitcoin inevitable? Is Bitcoin inevitable? The word inevitable is very loaded. <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't think anything is inevitable, right? Even the sun coming up tomorrow. What do we know, right? Think it, anything could happen, as they say. Um, however, I do have a deep conviction that so long as Bitcoin continues to exist, that people will continue to discover that it is the ultimate form of private property and it offers them and affords them all of these advantages that were previously not available to them. Um, you know, people are getting plundered all the time today, right? What Lebanon recently had a currency devaluation of like 90%, right? Uh, I was talking to safety and on the boat yesterday, he's just moved, moved back to Lebanon and, um, people get wiped out in the local currency. I think it was the, the lira or whatever it was. They dollarize and they put the dollars back in the bank. And it's like, how many times is that going to happen in a world where Bitcoin exists before people just figure out like, I'm going to stop putting my money in these fucking banks now. And I'll just put it in this bank that no one knows how to loot or debase or hack or steal. So, so long as Bitcoin continues to be an existent option and humans keep doing what we've been doing across all of human history, which is monopolizing money, debasing it into worthlessness, collapsing the civilization running on the money and then picking up the pieces and rebuilding. I don't see how a world in which Bitcoin exists and this ongoing pattern of human action plays out that people don't figure out over time that Bitcoin is just the optimal solution, right? It's like, I wait, I can completely opt out of this crazy boom and bust civilizational cycle by just holding my money in this private property that no one can violate. And it's not like, I'm not, you're not really even betting on a subjective choice. You're not, the people don't need to figure it out. I'm not betting that everyone watches the show and figures out what is money and decides to buy Bitcoin. It's like, you just let that process of pain unfold. The people that don't figure it out get wiped out. The people that do figure it out survive and thrive. And so there's this Darwinian natural selection process that happens in the socioeconomic sphere that leads toward Bitcoin becoming the dominant asset in the world. Um, so is that, does that make Bitcoin inevitable? No, not necessarily. It's like I'm presuming that it continues to exist. Um, that presumption is based on what Bitcoin is, right? It's money wrapped in military grade encryption designed to do one, to do one thing, which is survive, you know, survive according to certain parameters, block every 10 minutes, 21 million hard cap, um, to be unchangeable, frankly, right? To be unassailable. And there's a huge, huge bounty, huge incentive to try to crack Bitcoin. It goes against every entrenched power structure in the world, yet no one has figured out a way to even shake the tree, right? Like, I guess the the 2017 fork wars were probably the most viable threat vector we've seen manifest against Bitcoin, and that played out phenomenally well for Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin 
cash became Bitcoin crash and Bitcoin TikTok next block. Here we are. So to the extent Bitcoin continues to exist as an option for human beings engaging in a world where human beings are always trying to scam other human beings, I think people will select Bitcoin as the right thing over time and those who fail to select it will go out of existence and those who do select it will will thrive. I'm getting conscious of your time. If you uh, if you had some final words for anyone who who could possibly be listening to this, who's this is their first contact with Bitcoin, like like mm. they stumbled across this thing, and they stumbled across this podcast, and they've made it this far in listening. <laughs> what would you say? They've been doing these. Um, interesting or a, a guy uses like a laser projector on the side of the European Central Bank building and it just blasts this giant Bitcoin logo onto the building and it says study Bitcoin and I loved how it said study Bitcoin not buy Bitcoin or whatever it's like just study it honestly that's why I named the show what is money it's like ask yourself the question. I'm not, I don't have a prescriptive answer for you. In fact, asking the question for 300 plus episodes, I have more questions than ever. You would think I'd have some answers by now. We do. We have a lot of answers, but more answers led to more questions. And it's, it's a very interesting rabbit hole to say the least. Um, and it, it highlights maybe the insufficiency of language in some respects and, and dealing with, with complex phenomena, but study Bitcoin. Just ask, you know, ask yourself, what is money? And I'm, whatever, do your own research, figure it out for yourself. Um, you know, if, to say it and try to kind of a few words, if you understand that printing money is bad, which I don't know, some people do, some people don't, it doesn't make any sense to counterfeit money, right? If, if money is the thing we use to acquire goods and services and all goods and services require work to produce, doesn't it make sense that all money should require work to produce, right? That's what gold was. That's what Bitcoin is. That's what fiat currency is not. So you can create money with no work. If you can create money with no work that can be used to acquire goods and services, which require work, that is an asymmetry that's used to exploit the savings of people, right? So if you're saving in dollars and the central bank can counterfeit dollars, you're being robbed all the time. I don't care if the cash is under your mattress, in your backyard, in your, uh, the Caribbean bank account, whatever, it doesn't matter, right? You're using an instrument to save your economic energy that's being counterfeited at scale by a central bank. Like you're not in a good position. You're being exploited. Um, all of these I mean, so that if you understand that, I guess you would understand that money, printing money is bad. Bitcoin's money you can't print. So that's pretty simple. That's good, right? Like uncounterfeitable currency. Great. Yeah. That's, a, that's a win. Um, and maybe slightly more philosophical was just the, the point on justice earlier. Like all we want if the exclusive scope of government is life, liberty, and property, we just want people in this world to get what they deserve. That would be kind of the ideal world, right? Not that we can ever fully create that. The world's full of randomness and catastrophes and all of this, but 
we can at least create that in our social fabric, right? We can implement justice into our socioeconomic fabric, let's say. And that principle of justice, its only implementation is private property, which is just saying you made it or you justly traded for it. That means you own it, you keep it. No one can steal it from you. No government can take it from you. No criminals can take it from you. So that's what Bitcoin is, right? It's just property that's really hard to separate from its owner. So it's it's just. It's just. Is it truth? It is also, the let's say, the greatest instantiation of truth that human beings have ever created, right? Whatever's written in that Bitcoin blockchain, the history of transactions, how can you argue with it? It's immutable. It's un- That's yeah, the point. Like the, the change, the trades have occurred. You could argue with it, but it'd be like trying to, there's an axiom in Austrian economics. It's called the axiom of action. And it's man must act. Three words, right? Very loaded words though. What it actually means is that Man must use means Mm -hmm. to pursue ends. Now, here's why it's an axiom, which means it's incontrovertible. It's an incontrovertible truth. You cannot refute it. Because if you attempt to argue that the axiom of action does not exist or it is improper or it's incorrect, you are in fact using the means of argumentation (laughs) in an attempt to refute the axiom of action, which is your end. Yeah. <laughs> so it's 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 impossible, right? It's an, it's an axiom. It's a p- pillar. You can't shake it. You can't break it. Bitcoin, like what's encoded in that blockchain, is incontrovertible truth, right? They are these are transactions that have taken place. Consensus has been reached, and TikTok next block, we're on to the next, the next set of transactions. So whatever's you know six blocks plus deep in that blockchain, is probabilistically the most truthful thing humans have ever created. Uh, Nick Zabo uses the metaphor of digital amber, right? If you remember the the mosquito trapped in amber in Jurassic Park. Yeah. It's like the, the further you go into that amber, like the deeper into the past you're going, something like that. And Yeah, Bitcoin is perhaps not the truth. Maybe the truth is beyond words, beyond logic, beyond human, uh, the the capacity for humans to create it, right? But it is definitely the closest thing to truth humans have ever created. That's a beautiful note to finish on. Um, Robert, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining me on Bitcoin People. Uh, I wish you an absolutely fabulous conference. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me, and thank you for the socks. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. (laughs) 